So I'm excited. So this section of Romans 15 in my prep this week, this is like probably one of my favorite passages to go over uh, because this is really like the conclusion statement to all of the main through line in Romans. So after this, there's still a little bit that Paul's going to go through. Uh, He's going to talk about his future plans of travel. He's going to kind of close out the letter with greetings and personal uh, thanksgiving to people who are located in Rome and blessing the saints that are there. Uh, But really the main through line and the thought ideas that he started with in Romans 1, he's going to bring to a conclusion in this section before he kind of gets on with the rest of that, uh, those kind of like more minor details. Because remember, this is a letter written to real people. So the close of this letter is like, these are like the PS parts that come afterwards. Um, So in this section, uh, we're approaching really like a climax or a conclusion of ideas. So what we're going to see is like the whole boat of Romans that we've been building so far, like over the last year and some change. Uh, we're going to be pulling forward into uh, this sermon as well to kind of bring to head all of these ideas and kind of conclude uh, everything. And this passage is primarily a summary of the letter and the major themes that are found in the letter. But the purpose here primarily is for all of us, Jew and Gentile, to rejoice in the plan of God that he has for salvation. So the plan that God has for salvation is clearly laid out in this text. And he's going to tell us all to rejoice and be glad and worship God on behalf of that plan of salvation. Paul's going to lay out the consistent stepwise and inevitable decisions that God made to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles through the Jewish people, through his son, and as was predicted all throughout the Old Testament scripture. And we should celebrate this together and to embrace one another on behalf of the unity that God has in Christ. Because this was God's plan all along not just that we would be saved, but that we would save to unify and glorify God together. And one of the primary ways in which God is going to prove himself to be God in the Bible is through prophecy. So you'll often see things like where God is called into question, like when Moses approaches Pharaoh uh, in the account in uh, Exodus. Uh, God is going to declare himself to be the God of all gods, the God most high, because he's going to do something that's like way above what any other deity or spiritual being can do on behalf of those people. And one of the main ways God does this is through prophecy. Uh, This is like one of the main apologetic ways that the prophets in the Old Testament prove that they are working on behalf of the one true God, is they'll say something's going to happen, and then that thing will go about and happen exactly as they said it would. And so in this case, we're going to see a bunch of Old Testament prophecies coming to fruition. In fact, four specific prophecies that are named here that were predicted 400 years before Jesus came to earth. So these prophecies were written and Jesus fulfilled them perfectly 400 years after uh, they were written in pen to paper. And some of these even longer than that. And in Isaiah, uh, he often says that if you want proof that I am God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it's going to happen. And then when those things go about and happen, everyone turns around and says that Isaiah must worship the one true God. And even if you were reading uh, with me uh, this week in the M. Shane plan, One of the things that's amazing is how Daniel approaches King Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that Daniel has to do to prove to Nebuchadnezzar that he could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream correctly is he has to first tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. So Nebuchadnezzar says that I need an interpretation for my dream and he calls all his wise men and all his magicians and everyone to him, all of like the sorcerers of his land from all these people that he's conquered. And he says, I want the interpretation of the dream. And they say, okay, well, what's the dream? And he says, if you could tell me the dream, I would know that you're going to also have the interpretation of the dream. So he's asking for them knowledge that they would not have unless it had been specially revealed to them. And then Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all the wise men because he says, none of them can interpret my dream for me because they can't tell it to me. And then Daniel goes to King Nebuchadnezzar. He requests special counsel with him. And he says, King, I can tell you what the dream is. And I will also tell you the interpretation. And then Nebuchadnezzar, after Daniel tells him not only the dream, but also the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar turns around and says, truly you worship the one most high and true God. And he rightly acknowledges God as God on behalf of Daniel's prophecy about what is to occur. And so this is the primary apologetic in the Old Testament. It's the primary apologetic that Paul uses in the New Testament as well. And really, if you think about it, if Jesus never came, the majority of the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament have failed. Because a lot of the prophecies that came in the Old Testament, they are specific to a certain time and to a certain place. For example, in one of the prophetic writings, they say that the Messiah, the root of Jesse, will come after the first temple is destroyed. It will be rebuilt into the second temple. And then the Messiah will come and then the second temple will be destroyed. And the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So the Jewish Messiah should have come before 70 AD. 
So if the Jewish Messiah wasn't Jesus, then the Jews are sitting around here looking and saying, well, maybe he's not going to fulfill all the prophecies. Or they say that he will come riding on a colt into town, triumphant. That's not going to happen today. <laughs> no one's riding on colts anymore. <laughs> so some of those prophecies are specific and time-wise. And so in the Old Testament, so many of these prophecies that Jesus comes and fulfills, if there was no Jesus, if you pull him out of the picture, the whole Old Testament is just like, well, God must have been lying the whole time because he was specifically declaring things to have occurred that otherwise without Jesus would never have occurred and haven't occurred if Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And so we're going to take a look at God's plan of salvation, the one he's predicted all throughout the Old Testament, really with three major truths about who God reveals himself to be through his plan. So we're going to look first at God's glory, which is going to be verses 7 through 9, uh, verse 9 before he starts quoting uh, from uh, Psalm. And then we're going to look at God's immutability, that is God's unchanging character. It's one of his attributes. He's unchangeable. Unlike you and I, God is immutable. We'll talk more about that. And that's going to be in verse 9 from the quotation all the way through the end of verse 12. And then in verse 13, we're going to look at God's salvation. Because truly, at the end of the day, it is God's salvation, not only for his people, but also for all of his creation. And so first, we're going to take a look at God's glory as revealed through his plan. And Paul's going to open up with really the ace of spades as why all people in the church should be unified together, both Jews and Gentiles. And that ace of spades is that God's glory is at stake if the church is not unified. That's the ace of spades. And so he starts off and he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore is a transitional word, and you have to always ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore in the text as you go move forward? And so what he's going to say here is therefore, so he's transitioning an idea, and this whole idea is what we started off in Romans 14 verse 1, all the way into 15, verse 6. So he's basically saying, hey, strong Christians, don't violate the conscience of your weaker brothers. And weak Christians, don't despise your stronger brothers. Instead, therefore, on the basis of what God has done for you, welcome and embrace one another because Christ has embraced you for the glory of God. So the therefore is going to transition us into like a final summative statement on what he's just summarizing, that whole section, chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to 15, verse 6. And his primary thing that he's going to say is he's going to say welcome one another. And that word welcome in this translation is actually kind of weak. The word welcome could also mean embrace. So you're not welcoming as in you're not tolerating, just tolerating one another. It's a very low bar of acceptance. But he's saying you want to embrace one another as family. And we've been looking primarily at the strong and the weak believers. But what you also have to understand is that the strong and the weak, although weren't perfectly split along ethnic lines, were pretty much majorly split along ethnic lines, because the strong believers primarily consisted of Jews and Gentiles. And that, that suspicion that we've had kind of moving through this section is going to be confirmed here when Paul actually turns back to the Jewish uh, antistic dialogue partner, this person he's been having a conversation with the whole Romans, this person who he's always anticipating an objection and then he's shooting down the objection. And Paul's going to turn to this person and he says, hey, by the way, salvation is also for Gentiles. And the only reason he would be saying that is if the Jewish people who are Christians were concerned that salvation wasn't actually for the Gentiles. So not only was the strong and weak split along lines of conviction, but also primarily it was split along lines of ethnicity. Because the Jewish people were primarily falling into that weak category. Because remember, they carried the Old Testament law with them. And so Jewish believers were convicted in their spirit of the Old Testament law that it still applied to them. And the Gentile believers knew nothing of the Old Testament law, so it was of no concern to them. So they would primarily have identified as strong believers. Now, there were some Jewish Christians who felt liberated to embrace and were falling into a strong category, but primarily, by and large, it was along ethnic lines that these were split. And this tension of ethnic division is not new to Paul. In fact, Jesus addresses this same ethnic tension. And I want us to turn to a passage in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we're going to see just how tense things were ethnically between Jews and and Gentiles. So Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start off in verse 16. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus is, um, we're not going to read the whole section, but we're just going to uh, kind of take bits and pieces of it. So Jesus walks into the temple, he opens up one of the prophetic scrolls, and he reads this scroll, he reads a little excerpt of it. 
And then after he reads this scroll, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the person in the temple, and he sits down, and with all the eyes of the synagogue fixed on him, he, get, he begins to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And this scroll is a messianic prophecy. So Jesus opens up the Bible, he says, he reads it out loud, and then he sits down and he says, that was talking about me. Today it was fulfilled in your hearing. That's a pretty bold claim, a pretty bold statement, right? But you'll notice the Jewish people, they don't actually get that upset. Some people are a little bit cynical and they'll say, isn't this Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son? Like, hey, don't we know this guy? He grew up and we saw him in our midst. And then he turns around and in response to their doubt, he's going to turn around and say something even more offensive to them. And this is what's going to cause them to almost kill him. And so Jesus turns around and says, doubtless you will quote me on the proverb saying, physician, heal yourself. And he's going to kind of go on to a little train of thought. But he continues his rebuttal, and he says in verse 25, or sorry, in verse 24, he says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So what he's saying here is that I read this scroll to you, I proclaim that it was true, but you reject me because you know where I grew up, you know my family, you know uh, the, the place I used to go to play with the other kids, like you know who I am, right? No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, And when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of the widows in Israel, but of them only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all of the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up to drive out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of a hill, in which the town was built. So they bring him to the edge of a cliff that they could throw him down the cliff and kill him. But passing through their mist, he went away. So it doesn't give much explanation how Jesus gets away. We just know that he does. Um, But primarily, Jesus is going to make two bold claims. One is that what he's saying is offensive to them for two reasons, and he knows this. He knows that him saying that Elijah, the prophet Elijah, who the Old Testament Israelites would have worshipped as a prophet of God, He says that Elijah was sent in the time of Israel's greatest need, in a famine. He was sent not to an Israelite widow, but to a pagan widow. And then he says in Elisha, who was the the follow-up to Elijah, Elisha comes right after him as another prophet. And he says, Elisha was not sent to any of the people in Israel who were suffering from leprosy. He was sent to a Syrian ruler who was the oppressing nation of the Israelite people. And so both of these prophets of God were primarily sent by God, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And this is so offensive to the Jewish people that they want to kill Jesus. So this tension between Jews and Gentiles, the Jews were harboring closely salvation, and Jesus is trying to break this mold. And so he says this, they try to kill him, and now Paul is going to say the same thing to his Jewish context believers, the weaker brothers. He's going to say, hey, by the way, Salvation is also for the Gentile people. He's been arguing this throughout all of Romans. So we are the Gentiles, in case you didn't know. None of us, I don't think, have any Jewish heritage. Um, But primarily, we would fall or categorize as Gentile people. So this is good news for us, that salvation is also for the Gentiles. And we are going to welcome others primarily for the glory of God, which is what Paul is going to go on to now argue in Romans. So you guys can turn back to Romans Uh, chapter 15 with me. And we're going to continue on in that verse. And he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So not only do we welcome one another for the glory of God, because it's what Paul's exhorting us to do, God's glory is at stake in our unity, but also Christ died on the cross primarily for the glory of God. It says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Christ welcomed us into salvation, not merely just to save us, but primarily to give God the most glory. Jesus welcomes both Gentiles and Jews into relationship with him, and we are to brace one another as a family because Jesus welcomes us into relationship with him despite our sin. And so we can welcome one another into relationship despite our minor differences of opinion. If Christ could overlook our sin and welcome us in as adopted sons and daughters, then we can welcome in one another 
despite opinion differences, or in this case, ethnic differences. And then he's going to say, for God's glory, which is the hinge text, so both us welcoming one another and Christ welcoming us is primarily for God's glory. And we see that primarily the reason that salvation occurred and primarily the reason unity is demanded by Paul is because of the glory of God. And this is a truth of salvation, that Jesus died so that God would be most glorified. Jesus died primarily for the glory of God. And often we'll say, well, didn't he die for me? And we grow up like in VBS or whatever, and we grow up hearing that Jesus came to save you. He came because he loves you so much. And that is true. But that's not his primary reason for doing the things that he does. That is no doubt a benefit that we rejoice in. But his primary reason for coming and his primary reason for welcoming people into salvation is for the glory of God. And we're going to see this idea unpacked a little bit more so here in a bit. And to prove this to you, I'm going to read for you Psalm 106. You don't need to turn there with me, but you could. Psalm 106. And in Psalm 106, uh, it's a really lengthy psalm, so I'm definitely not going to read all of it. I would love to, but we just don't have time. Um, And in Psalm 106, it's amazing because the psalmist is going to recap in poetic form essentially all of what happens through Genesis and Exodus in the Bible. And he's going to trace God's faithfulness to his people. And we actually read this this week as well on the Aim Shane plan. And he says, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's how he opens the psalm. And then in verse 7, he's going to say, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, talking about God. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And so the story that he's unpacking here is when the Israelites were backed up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian people were closing in on them. And they turn and they curse God and they said, why did you just bring us out here to just die out just outside of Egypt. We had things so good in Egypt, and they were slaves in Egypt, so they didn't have things so good. But, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So the primary reason why God saves the people, why God delivers the Israelites from the Red Sea, is not ultimately to deliver the Israelites. That is something that happened. But the primary reason why he does it is for his name's sake, for the glory of God. And the real problem that we see with sin, and we've seen this all throughout Romans so far, the real problem with sin, is that sin robs God of his glory. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it pictures the root cause of sin perfectly. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so he gives them up to the lusts of their flesh and their own passions. The primary problem with sin is it robs God of his glory. And so God is going to save us, not only to save us, but primarily to gain back his glory because he deserves glory and he's worthy of worship. And so his primary plan in salvation is to bring himself the most glory. And then Paul is going to turn in verse 15, or sorry, in verse uh, 8, and he's going to continue on with this uh, train of thought. And he's going to say, for I tell you, and before we move on from there, For I tell you, is Paul saying, hey, by the way, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Everything he says in his argument is logically important, but at this point, he's going to like, with bold and underline, try to proclaim a truth to us. So this doctrine is very important, what he's about to say. And he transitions now to a gospel explanation, and this is a really cool gospel explanation. He says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, one, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and Two, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So we get a gospel presentation, a summary of a gospel presentation. And Paul is going to say, before he makes this gospel presentation, he's going to say, for I tell you, by the way, this is really important. Jesus Christ became a servant of the law, but became a servant of the circumcision. It's just another way of saying he came under the law. So Jesus was born as a Jewish person, as a Jewish man. And he grew up under the Jewish legal system. He grew up under the system of circumcision. And he grew up in the line of David, as we see in the opening chapter of Matthew. And he grew up not only with under the law, not only in the line of David, but also he grew up without sin. Because he didn't receive the original sin from Adam. Because his father wasn't Adam, his father was God. And so although Mary gives birth to Jesus, God is his father. And so Jesus grows up without any sin, and he also never sins as well. Although having many opportunities and temptations, he never sins. So he lives this perfect life. So he became the circumcision 
For he needed to fulfill the covenant to prove God true in what he says in the Old Testament. And we see this because the very next line is he became a a servant to the circumcision to show God's truthfulness. Jesus came to prove that God was correct in everything that he said in the Old Testament. Jesus came to verify God's truth. Jesus came to fulfill God's prophecy. Jesus came to glorify God. Because if you're a Jewish person sitting in this context, the glory of God is right now at stake because God has promised a whole lot of things that haven't happened yet. And so Jesus comes not only to save people, but primarily to say, hey, by the way, all those things that God said, they're true and they're pointing to me. And I'm going to go ahead and do all of these things. So Jesus came to fulfill the truthfulness of God's word. And so the first way in which he did that is in order to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs. There are a bunch of promises given to the patriarchs that you can read throughout all of Genesis and they get repeated in Exodus and then there's one to David. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or as he was renamed later, Israel. And Jesus understood this as well, that he came to fulfill the promises given to the patriarchs. He says in Matthew 15, 24 about his own ministry, that I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in Galatians 4, chapter 4 and verse, or Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, he says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are also under the law. So Jesus comes under the law to redeem those who are under the law, primarily Jews who were under the law. And so Jesus' primary ministry, first and foremost, was to the patriarchs, to the Jewish people, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the promises that are delivered to the patriarchs, all those promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, they are seen rightly and ultimately as fulfilled in Christ. If you stop short of Christ, if you just look at the promise to Abraham as ethnic Israel, you're going to miss a whole big chunk of that prophecy. So they are ultimately and rightly fulfilled in Christ. And another reason why Jesus came is in order that the Gentiles might also glorify God for his mercy. So this is where you and I come into play, because again, we're Gentiles. And so he's gonna, the Gentiles are primarily going to glorify God, not primarily for his truthfulness, but primarily for his mercy. So the Jewish people glorify God for his truth, and the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. Although we also glorify in the truth of God, we primarily glorify in the mercy that God shows us. Mercy is because God gives us a promise and an inheritance to those outside of the covenant people of God. You see, God didn't make a covenant with anyone other than Abraham. God makes an ethnic covenant with Abraham, and so he owes it to Abraham to uphold this covenant to his offspring, but he doesn't owe it to us. So he shows us mercy by including us within the bounds of this covenant. And in Romans 11, we get a great picture of this. We get the olive tree analogy. And you get this picture of that we were a wild olive tree and there was a native-born olive tree. And the native-born olive tree had some branches that had to be cut off. And then we, the wild olive tree, we get some branches that are grafted into the native olive tree. But primarily, we, the wild branches, are supported by the same root, which is ethnic Israel. The root of this olive tree is the people of God, the Jews. And then we are grafted in as Gentiles into this people as well. The Jews glorify God for his truth because he was fulfilling his promises to the patriarchs, and the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. And in this beautiful harmony of both God God being glorified for both his mercy and for his truth, he is wonderfully glorified by his covenant people. And we're not going to pass quickly over God's mercy. As Gentiles, we should dwell there for a while. We should sit and meditate and reflect on the wondrous glory of the mercy of God, which he didn't deserve, which we didn't deserve, which he didn't need to give us. And yet while we are sinners and rebels against God, he extends his arm and offers us the free gift of salvation. Not because he had to, not because he owed it to us, not because his word was at stake, but because he is a merciful God. His word was at stake for the Israelites. His word was not at stake for us. But Aside from the promises of the patriarchs, we're going to see that God's plan always did include the Gentiles. And we're going to see that through four Old Testament quotations. So we're going to turn to look at God's immutability, that is his unchanging character. And this plan to include uh, the Gentiles is not God's plan B. It's not like he was trying to save Israel. They rejected him. And he's like, well, what other options do we have? And then he looks around and he's like, well, there's Gentiles here. I could probably save a few of those. He always had this plan in place from the origins of humanity 
to save all people and redeem all people unto himself. God is unchanging. So his plan didn't change in salvation. It was only realized, revealed to us differently throughout time. And in this next section, Paul's going to put finally to bed this Jewish antagonistic dialogue partner. And he's going to do so with four Old Testament quotations. He's going to say, by the way, Jewish people, your Old Testament proves what I'm about to say. So it's not like you can argue with what he's about to say. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 12 to you, and then we're going to break down what are the references. He says, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Paul's going to quote from the writings, from the law, and from the prophets in order to prove this. This is the entire uh, literary scope of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And he's going to quote twice from the writings, once from the law, and once from the prophets to prove that the whole Old Testament spoke with one voice about the plan of God. And that plan is to include the Gentile people in the praise and worship of God for salvation. And Paul wants it to be understood that the primary identity of these people is not ethnic, it's not Jewish, it's not Gentile. The primary identity is we were sinners and we are now washed by the blood of Christ. And this teaching is most evidently identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you would turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a beautiful picture of uh, what our primary identity is and how it's going to inform how we best worship and how we best praise God. Because our culture today is speaking very loudly about our identity and what our identity primarily should be. And I want you to see that in the Bible, the Bible has something to say about our identity and what it primarily is and who it's primarily found in. So I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 9. And he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's a great transition statement. He says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, what's interesting about this is all of these things, greed, lust, idolatry, sexual orientation, these are all markers that Paul considers things that can be overcome. These are not primary identifiers of these people because he says, and such were, past tense, some of you. This used to be your primary identity, and that is you were a sinner, primarily. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, you're not primarily a sinner, you're primarily an adopted son and daughter of Jesus Christ. And that's our primary identity as Christians. Not what we were, not what we struggle with, not something outside of the family, but primarily our identity is that we are within the body of Jesus Christ. We are within the church. And so in these Old Testament quotations, I'm going to come back to this, uh, what Paul says here, but uh, if you want to turn with me back to 15, we're going to look at all four quotations, and we're going to see how this worship of the Gentiles includes these identity markers. And so the first one in verse 9 is a quotation out of Psalm 18:49, or it's also potentially out of 2 Samuel 22, verse 50. 2 Samuel 22:50 is the one I'm going to choose to pick on because that's where you get like the full explanation of what's going on, but it's really repeated in both. And in 2 Samuel 22:50, he says, Therefore, I will, sing, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing your name. So David, in this context in 2 Samuel, is he's finally conquered the Philistines. He's conquered Saul, who was persecuting him. He's conquered all the nations around him. He's won all the wars. And he's going to turn around and he's going to say, I'm going to praise and declare the name of God in the, in the face of these opposing and rival nations. And I'm going to worship God in the presence of these Gentiles. 
And then if you turn to verse 51, so I'm going to turn to 2 Samuel right now to read verse 51 to you, which is not quoted here, but they would have had this in mind as well. 2 Samuel 22, verse 51. He says, For I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and he showed steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. And if you remember, David's offspring primarily is realized in Jesus. And so all of David's victories, all of David's celebration, all of David's glorification of God is ultimately and finally realized fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus ultimately and finally glorifies God by his bringing in of the Gentile people. And so David is a type of Christ. He points forward to who Jesus is going to be. So the Old Testament, again, speaks with one voice. And the second quotation we get in verse 10 is from Deuteronomy 32:43. Moses, in his second delivery of the law, in his closing exhortations to the people of Israel, he warns them they're going to turn from God, and God is going to bring wrath upon them, and then God is going to reconcile all of them back to himself. And he says that in that time when God reconciles all of them back to himself, Deuteronomy 32, 43, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, with the people of Israel. And we see that when God reconciles the Israelites back to himself, he also sweeps up the Gentiles as well in that reconciliation. And so Moses predicts that this is going to happen also at the end of the book of the law. That the Gentiles are now seen not only as having God worshipped in their presence, but they're also seen as praising God in the presence of the people of God. They're joined in unity in worship of God. This is a reality that's again fully realized in the church, in the body of Christ, after Jesus comes to restore all people to himself. And now we would say that the Gentiles have been grafted in to the body of Christ. They were the wild olive shoot and now they are part of the olive tree. And then in Psalm 117, uh, which is verse 11, it's the shortest, one of the shortest Psalms we get in all the Old Testament. And he says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all his peoples extol him. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. So now we see the Gentiles were, had God proclaimed in their midst. Then they praise and worship God with the people of God. And now they don't even need the people of God. They're going to praise and worship God on their own. That the Gentiles are primarily to praise God as well, even despite whether they have Jewish people there with them or not. And he says, and he goes on in verse 2, which is a very short psalm, so I'm not going to have his turn there, but he says, on the basis of God's steadfast love, his covenant hope and his promises is why the Gentiles should praise him. And you can read about that in verse 2 of Psalm 117. And he says, uh, he says us at the end of that. He's saying, you're going to praise him with us. And the Gentiles are included in that us. So now the Gentiles are fully and finally adopted in as believers. And so Paul is going to drive this point home one more time with, I think, the strongest reference that he uses. And that is the depiction in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, which is this last one we see in verse 12 here. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And what's interesting about this reference is if you read that specific context in Isaiah, this is a messianic prophecy. It's pointing forward. But what's interesting in this messianic prophecy is the root of Jesse, which the root of Jesse is David. So David is the one who comes after Jesse. So the root of Jesse, David, will come. David, who again we just talked about, is ultimately and finally realized to be Jesus. He just points forward the whole time. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. So just as David ruled over the Gentiles and praised God in their midst, Jesus will ultimately come to rule over the Gentiles and to have them praise him. In him will the Gentiles hope. So not only are the Gentiles now praising Jesus, they are also hoping in Jesus. And that hope is a very specific type of hope. It's actually the hope of salvation. Both the Jews and the Gentiles share a common Messiah and a common king. So although they're divided ethnically, although they're divided probably among every secondary and tertiary issue you could imagine, they have one king, they have one Messiah, they have one ruler, as predicted by the Old Testament in all of the different writings of the Old Testament. And on the basis of this unity, this primary identifying commonality that they have, they are called to worship God. And God is going to gather a remnant of Jews, as you read later in that passage, and he says at the end, in him will the Gentiles 
So both the Jews, the remnant, and the Gentiles are going to worship and hope together in Christ, their, their coming king, their coming Messiah. So there's no room for animosity between these two groups because the Jews were always intended to bring salvation to the Gentile people. It is through the Jewish nation that salvation comes to the Gentile people. So the Gentiles can't be mad because it's through the Jews that salvation came to them. So they can't be mad at the Jews. And the Jews can't be mad at the Gentiles because their ultimate purpose was to bring these people along the whole time. So both the Jews and the Gentiles have to be unified because it was their mission to be unified always. And this is not a New Testament alone teaching. Paul is going to cite all of these passages to say that this is a common voice throughout all of Scripture, fully and finally realized in Jesus. Remember, prophecy is the best apologetic that God uses. And so he predicts this, quibbled all throughout the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes and it's like lights are going off because Jesus is doing all these things, right? So our society, again, it tells us to embrace our identity, that we must be fully who we are in order to be happy. But our identity is not primarily found in our race. It's not primarily found in our politics. It's not primarily found in our jobs, in our money, in our interests, in our sexual orientation, in our status. All of those things can change. They're mutable. They're things that can change. Only Jesus is immutable. So the only primary identity that matters is where we stand with him. If you are in the family of Jesus, you have your primary identity. Our identity is that we all confess Jesus as Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 6.11, I just want to remind you of that wonderful verse. He says, and such were some of you. You did find your primary identity outside of Christ. You did find your worth outside of Christ. You did find everything that mattered to you outside of who God was. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And now, all of those old things were washed away. And Christ is making you new to be fully and finally like him, like his people. And so we worship in that because our primary identity is not in who we are, it's in who Christ is and who he is making us to be. And it's a pretty high order. But Paul is going to then close not only with this high command, but he's going to close with an intercessory prayer on behalf of the people and then a benediction to the Roman church. And we read that in verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. The God who is the source of eternal hope and eternal life must fill us with joy and peace. Because he's praying for God to fill us in our believing with both joy and peace. So we know that God is not only the thing we have to hope in, he's also the source of our hope. And we have to have joy in this present moment, which God fills us with, that we can be joyful no matter what the circumstances are. And we have to have peace, which is primarily could be read as in Romans 5, where he says, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we are no longer at war or at odds with God. So he's talking about salvific peace, that we have peace about our status as sons and daughters, that we might be filled with joy and filled with peace, and that we might have eternal hope in the life that we have forward. And here God is the source of our hope because at the end he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to point this out. In this passage so far, we've had Christ mentioned, we've had God the Father mentioned, and now we've had the Holy Spirit mentioned. This is worth noting that in the doctrine of the Bible, you will never see the word Trinity. This is just a side note. So oftentimes, people will come up to Christians, and if you don't know, then you're going to get caught off guard with this. They will say, by the way, you know Trinity is never in Scripture? So where do you get that doctrine from? And it's because we have a hermeneutic. We have a consistent way of understanding Scripture. And if we interpret Scripture rightly through that hermeneutic, we can paint ourselves the picture of what the Trinity is. And many people labored over this. Many church fathers debated over this. Some people were burned at the stake for this. This is a big doctrine. But here we have a picture of what the Trinity is like. We have one of the snapshots. And if you read the New Testament, you will get all these different kinds of snapshots. But anytime they're all mentioned in a passage together, it's worth paying attention to. And maybe worth noting how are each of them mentioned and what roles do each of them play in salvation. Because all of them here are discussed as being God. God the Holy Spirit. God, the G God Jesus Christ the Messiah. 
God the Father. So just worth noting. It's a side note that has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about. I just thought it was worth mentioning. But we see that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that God is our source of hope. And there's all kinds of verses in the Old Testament that point to this truth. I'm going to read some from the Old and some from the New. If you want to, you can just jot these down to look them up later. In Psalm 119, verse 49, we get this amazing passage where the psalmist is praising God for his law. And he says, remember your word to your servant. That is, remember the promises you made to me in which you have caused me to hope. That not only is this person praising God for the words that he delivered to him, the promise, but he's also praising God for causing him to hope in those things. That we can do nothing outside of Christ, that Christ has to cause us, to fill us with his spirit in order for us to see and believe rightly. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we get this other amazing quotation. Peter says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That Christ causes us to be born again by the Holy Spirit. That when Jesus is talking to uh, a Pharisee, the Pharisee asks him, he says, Rabbi, how is it possible that I believe? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to be born again or else you're never going to see it. He says, how is that possible? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb and be reborn? He says, no, you have to be born of a baptism of the Holy Spirit. That The Holy Spirit has to fill you for your eyes to be opened. Note the cause and effect relationship. That first, the light, that first you have to have the power turn on before the light can go off, right? In Ezekiel 37.5, I like this one because it's from the Old Testament where we get our name as a church from Ruah. We're going to get the reference to the Spirit of God. This is the Valley of Dry Bones passage, and he says in Ezekiel 37.5, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And that breath is the breath of life. It's the same breath that was breathed into Adam when he was clay. Jesus breathes his breath into Adam, and Adam becomes a man. And again, these people are dead. These bones are dead. Valley of dry bones. They're not alive. They can't do anything. And he says to the prophet, prophesy over the bones that I will cause my breath to enter you. And as a result of my breath entering you, you shall live because you shall see rightly who I am. And just a chapter before that in Ezekiel, it's even more clear. He says in Ezekiel 36, 27, and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. The only people who can walk rightly in the law of God are those who've been internally transformed to see those things as beautiful and not like burdens. And we as Christians wrestle back and forth with this all the time, that even me as a, as a blood-bought son and daughter of Christ, I can still look at God's law and say that's a hefty burden. But ultimately, we look at those things and if we look long enough and if we pray hard enough and if we seek God with those things and we surrender them to him, we see those things as beautiful and not as burdens, not as bad news. We see them as good news. Because he's going to cause us to walk in his statutes. He's going to cause us to live. He's going to cause us to be born again through the hope of the resurrection. And not only is God the source of our hope, which is our salvation, but he is also the object of our hope and our salvation. Remember, the whole purpose of him putting his spirit within us is so we can turn around and glorify him. Because that was Jesus' primary concern was the glory of God. And so now that he saved us, he saved us for a purpose, for a mission, to bring God glory. So he's the object of our hope, and we, he needs to be the object of our hope because the thing that we hope in is the thing that we worship and the thing that we praise. If you hope in a career, you praise and worship that career. If you hope in politics, you praise and worship X political candidate. And whether they rise or whether they fall, that's how your day is going. What we hope in as Christians, is ultimately Jesus Christ. And we praise and we worship Jesus Christ because our hope has been placed in him. So when he succeeds, as he has, we praise and worship. And if he fails, as the disciples found out and he was being crucified, they were very concerned. They had a rough few days because their praise and their worship and their whole identity was tied up in who Jesus was. And so it should be with us that Paul says in the New Testament that if Christ is not resurrected from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. And that's true. If Jesus never resurrected from the dead, we as Christians are of most people to be pitied because we have no hope, we have nothing to praise, we have nothing to worship. But he is resurrected. 
He is seated on the right hand. He came and he's coming again. And he's coming again and he's certainly coming. And so we are to work right now and we're in the already saved and the not yet fully realized kingdom. And so we live in this intercessory space where we are to work for God. And again, as it's true in all of scripture, we work because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That we realize ultimately all things that we do are by God's grace gift to us to empower us to go do those things. And so I have two points of application for you today from this text. Two things that I think really stood out to me. Um, So I'm just going to go through them. They're going to be in no particular order of what we just looked through, but just kind of big piece pictures that I drew from this passage. The first is that we should glorify God for the mercy that he has shown to us. Remember, we are primarily the Gentile believers. And so if we are the Gentiles, we know that our salvation was not earned. It was not merited. It was not deserved. R.C. Sproul says, as soon as you're talking about something you might deserve, you're no longer talking about mercy because God doesn't owe mercy to anybody. That's what makes it by definition mercy. So we should glorify God for his mercy because it's on the basis of his mercy that you and I are blood-bought into the family of Christ. And that's not something we skip over and we start moving on to other truths. That should be a truth you could come back to day after day, week after week, year after year. Christian, for 40 years, you should be able to sit on the mercy of God and it should almost bring you to tears how good that is. And it's so sweet. And we're going to get a chance to worship together tonight and I want you to reflect on the mercy of God. And to not think about the problems that tomorrow brings or the problems that the day has brought with it or the problems that the last year has brought with it. But we can sit still on the mercy of God and just dwell on it. And we shouldn't skip over it. We shouldn't move too quickly through that. We should let it just steep. We should let it linger over us. And so that's a point of application, not because it's something for us to do, but it's because it's something for us to enjoy. And I think that in our busy lives, we don't sit still enough. So I'm not going to give you something to do, another action. You have plenty of those from work and from school and all the other things that you have on your plate. But in your quiet time in the morning when you open your Bible and when you open the Word of God or when you turn on the radio to listen to worship music or when you have a quiet second, if that's going to be at all possible this week, when you have that moment, you should sit and dwell on the mercy that God has shown you to bring you into his family. Because if he had not placed his spirit within you, you would not be part of the family because your eyes would never have been opened. It's nothing that we do to earn or merit salvation. It is only by the grace gift of God that we are within the family. And so we should glorify God always and continually for his mercy because there was nothing that you and I could have done to earn that. And it's in fact while we were rebels against God that he saves us. It's not like we were doing okay, not really well, and he just needed, we just needed a boost. We're not, we're not bad people who need a life coach. We are, we are sinners who need a Savior, and we have a Savior in Jesus. So we should glorify God for his mercy. That's point of application number one. You should dwell on that this week and worship God for his mercy. And then point of application number two is we need to embrace our identity. Our culture says that we need to embrace our identity, and I wholeheartedly agree that our identity primarily as Christians is as sons and daughters of the Most High King. That although we might have diversity in ethnicity or diversity of thought or diversity of financial resources or diversity of careers, as Christians, the only thing that can transcend all of those things is our status as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. Because the reality is that in 10,000 years to come, when we're all sitting at the throne and praising Jesus, I don't think you'll be too concerned about how much money you had or what your career was. I think you'll be more concerned about whether you're in that throne room getting to worship and glorify Jesus together. So if that's true 10,000 years from now and we're eternal beings, our primary identity today should always be through the lens of a son and daughter of Christ. Which means we welcome one another, we embrace one another with open arms as other blood-bought family, uh, as other blood-bought children of the Most High King. And that if we have differences about politics or differences about finances or differences about how you should handle a relationship or differences about all these types of things, you can still have unity together and worship and glorify God together because your primary identity, the thing that matters more than anything else, is the same. That you are a blood-bought child of the Most High King. 
So two points of application. None of them are things you should go out and do. They are just things you should rest in and truths you should enjoy. And I think that that is a very appropriate way to see this passage. And this is a benediction. So I want to read it over you in a second. But first I want to point out that although these truths are things we can enjoy, the the two application points I just mentioned, the thing that Paul prays over them is that uh, you may be filled with hope and with joy and with peace. And often in the church, we see many people seeking hope outside of Christ. That we see people seeking joy outside of Christ. And that we see people seeking peace outside of Christ. And we know that only Jesus can fill us with joy, hope, and peace, that it's going to fully and finally satisfy us. And so, if you are going to rejoice in the truths that I just mentioned, but you also have people in mind who are not able to rejoice in those same truths, you should be constantly on your knees in prayer for those people, for God to open their eyes, to fill them with his spirit, to walk rightly in his statutes. And we have to pray as uh, Jesus, when he was encountering uh, a Gentile believer, the Gentile believer has a son who's demon-possessed. And Jesus goes and he's going to heal this kid. And the, the Gentile believer says, if you can do it, please do it. And Jesus says, if I can do it, it is because of your unbelief that the demon is in him. And he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And it is that same prayer that we pray, that we always pray, that Lord, I believe, I want to believe, help my unbelief. And we know that other people have to pray that as well. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, help the areas in which I can't fully believe, but I want to believe, I want to lean in. Cause your spirit to make me believe. Fill me with your spirit. And so I want to read this benediction over you that as believers, since we have joy in Jesus, since we have hope in Jesus, and just as Paul wrote this benediction to you, I feel like it would be wrong to end any other way other than reading this benediction together. So church, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the truth that it contains, but Lord, more than that, I thank you for the glory which it brings you. That we are able to see you rightly through your word and be transformed as a result of your spirit. And Lord, that as we go throughout this week, that we would be able to fully rest in the truths that your word contains and the truths that this passage talks about. That we can glorify you for the hope that you bring us the peace that you bring us and the joy that you bring us. And Lord, that we would rest in those truths fully and finally as realized in you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.